Turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4. <clears throat> as you're doing that, I <clears throat> just want to invite you back this evening as we'll be uh, singing more Christmas hymns and singing the Hallelujah Chorus um, this evening as well. Uh, and uh, my nephew-in-law, I suppose, he married my niece, Demiron Haynes, a uh, great young man uh, who's studying at Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, down south, is going to be uh, bringing the word tonight. I'll be leading the service, and uh, we'll just have a, a wonderful Christmas uh, service together again this evening. So I want to invite you back for that. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in, chapter, in verse 23 of chapter 3, so we get a little better sense of the context. Just very quickly remind us uh, to catch up what Paul is doing here in the book of Galatians. He's responding to some false teachers who were teaching that to be a real Christian, you'll have to submit to the laws of Moses. And Paul is battling this with everything that he has because uh, it goes to the heart of the gospel. Uh, is, is grace sufficient? For salvation is faith sufficient for salvation or uh, must we add something to um, our salvation that must we contribute our obedience in order to be saved and and Paul is uh, then battling for the the core of the gospel the essential truths of the gospel here and in chapter 3 specifically he's pointing out to the uh, Galatian Christians the the silliness in a sense you could say of of the Judaizer position why would you go back to Moses when Abraham wasn't saved by the law of Moses, uh, when the inheritance, it's shown, uh, it's proven the, the, the inheritance that God gave to Abraham was not by law, but by faith. Um, and then he just talks about the bondage of the law, the enslavement of the law, and the freedom that we have now in Christ. And so that's where we'll pick it up in verse 23. But our text this morning will be chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, or the Greek is the lord of everything. He's the little master, okay? He's, 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 the, he's promised the inheritance, but he doesn't have access to it. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, Lord God, this is beautiful truth. It's, it might be hard to understand, so we ask your Holy Spirit to come and help us, to teach us. And Lord, then that we'd also have the ability to to believe these things to be true. 
And that we might, Lord, be blessed, enriched, and transformed by the knowledge of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, I don't uh, need to tell you, I'm sure, that it's almost Christmas time. Uh, This week, we'll celebrate Christmas. And um, most of you, I'm sure, are going to be opening presents this week. And maybe you've already seen the presents uh, under the Christmas tree. Nice, beautifully wrapped. And if the presents are there, I bet you've gone to see which presents have your name on it. Isn't that true? You have to go look and see which one has your name on it. Which, what, what present is your present? And, and the, the best thing is if the biggest present under the tree has your name on it. And even better, if, if uh, when you open it, you find that it's exactly the thing that you were most hoping for in all the world, and it has your name on it. Wouldn't it be a bummer if, if the present got opened and mom said, oh, I'm sorry, that was for your brother. It has your name on it. It's for you. Well, boys and girls, I want you to imagine the best possible Christmas present you could ever hope for, and then multiply that by a gazillion Because that's the value of the present that God has for us in Jesus. It's the greatest, most magnificent present God could ever give to mortals. And it has our name on it. Our very own name on it. In Jesus Christ. As I was studying the message, the text this week, I am thinking about adoption. Um, because that's the gift that God has given to us here. He's given us in Christmas the gift of adoption, that, that uh, we're, we've been brought into the forever family of God, and, and we have the gift of an eternal inheritance in Jesus. That's the gift of Christmas, and, and uh, as adopted children, that's what we receive. Um, so I, I went, as I was thinking about this on, online, and just uh, looked up some YouTube videos on adopted, uh, adoption surprises, is what I looked under, uh, just to... Um, I want to see what the experience of adoption looks like and get a sense of what it feels like. And these are uh, videos of adoptive parents surprising their chosen child with the news that they're going to be adopted. (coughs) The videos I saw were of children, uh, some were probably between the ages of 7 and uh, maybe 12, 13. The kids were old enough to know what was going on. Do you know what the experience of finding out you're being adopted looks like? It looks like initial disbelief because you don't dare believe it could be true. And that gives way to overwhelming joy, usually uh, in a burst of tears. It looks like the most amazing thing in the whole world, the most amazing thing conceivable happening to you. The one thing you wanted more than anything else in all of life is coming true. I can just still see the image of one little girl. They, her, her parents were driving actually to the court for the adoption. They just said they were going to take her. They had a surprise for her. And she's riding in the back, in the back seat. She's probably about 10 years old, big glasses, red sweater. <clears throat> and her mother's recording, and um, her adoptive mother, and says, uh, Honey, do you know where we're going? No. Well, we're going to go to this place, and um, we're going to adopt you today. And... And this little girl, she gasped and put her hand on her mouth. And there was, there was a look of astonishment that was mixed with such deep longing. But she didn't dare believe it was true. And her eyes are beginning to fill with tears. And, and she says, 
Really? You're lying. And her voice is trembling, her lip is trembling. She couldn't believe it was possible. But her new mother's joyful laughter assured her that it was true. And, and so she finally put her face in her hands and just began to sob with joy. That's what adoption feels like. That's what it looks like. And I would submit to you that that's what Christmas ought to feel like and look like for Christians. Because the central idea of our text and the central purpose of Christmas is this message of adoption. God sent His Son to accomplish our adoption, to bring us into the family of God, to bring us into the reality of our Father's love and the riches of an eternal home. <clears throat> what makes an adoption story beautiful is, of course, the before and after. Uh, the story of what the child's life was like before when they didn't have a family, they didn't have a home. And then what their life is like after, all the love and joy and richness that a child gains when they come into their forever family. Well, as Paul is writing to the Galatians, that's what he's reminding them of. He's reminding them that there was a, they had a former life uh, before their adoption. That's verses 1 through 3. And now in the fullness of time, they, they have a new life in Jesus Christ. And so that's how we'll divide the text up, the former, in, form, in the former time and then in the fullness of time. In chapter 3, as we just read, Paul has been reminding the Gentiles uh, believers, the, the, the Galatian believers, and their Jewish brothers and sisters, and the, even the Judaizers, he's reminding them of the former way of life, that uh, it was a hard life under the law. It was a life of captivity and imprisonment. That's what verse 23 says. It's strong words. Captivity. It was a life of failure and shame. It was life under a guardian, a strict ruler. And Paul continues this theme of what life was like under the law in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. Uh, he's just pointing out the hard reality of what life was like under the law of Moses. And that, was, uh, that, that reality is true just both historically for the Jews and personally for every person who comes to Christ. There was a life before, a life lived under the law, a life lived under condemnation, a life lived under rules and regulations that we could not, um, could not help us gain status with God. And so Paul's just reminding us and them and, and the Galatian believers that the Jews in the Old Testament, they were heirs of Abraham's promise. They were the children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. They just didn't, they didn't have access to the promise. The inheritance, in a sense, did them no good. They were, they were just little children under that strict guardian again. They had no rights. They couldn't even just determine their own bedtime. Boys and girls, do you ever feel like you're just in bondage? I mean, you you got to eat what you're told to eat. you got to go to bed when you're told to go to bed. I mean, no seems to be the favorite word in the house. Paul's reminding, I'm sure that's not true of your home, but other children live like that. And that Paul is reminding the, 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 his readers here, that's what it was like. It was like slavery. We were enslaved, he says in verse 3, to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's all kinds of discussion about what Paul means here. I think it's, it's, it's just easiest to understand. The word elementary in the Greek means very much what it means today. It means the basics. And I think what Paul is, is doing is just reminding the, the, uh, the, these believers 
that life under the law was life it's sort of like in spiritual elementary school. Boys and girls, some of you are in elementary school. And you're learning the basics, aren't you? You're learning your ABCs and how to add and how to subtract and how to write your letters. Those are the basics. They don't, they're necessary building blocks, but you can't really go get a job with a kindergarten degree. It's the basics. It's important, but it doesn't get you very far. Well, Paul is, in a sense, reminding the, uh, his readers that that's what life was like under the law. It, the law taught the ABCs of the gospel, but it didn't bring you into the benefit and the, the blessing of the gospel. You couldn't, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't really move forward with that. In verse 9, which we didn't read, he'll talk about the elementary principles as weak and worthless. The law was weak. It had no power, you see, to make you into a full son with all the rights of sonship. It was, it was beggarly, as the old King James, worthless, it says in the ESV here. It didn't, it didn't have any wealth to give. It couldn't af- afford any, any help for you. It cannot make you righteous, cannot make you right with God, cannot make you a child of God. And the, and the devastating um, tragedy of the Galatian churches is that the Judaizers had convinced them that the law actually could do these things. And so they're relying on the law, looking to the law, to gain what the law could never give. <laughs> One of the most heartbreaking tendencies of a child in a foster home is to look to the law to gain love, to gain acceptance, to gain standing. In other words, a little boy or a girl might do, try to do their very best to be good, hoping that it will be good enough to be loved, good enough to be wanted, good enough to be adopted, good enough to gain a mommy and a daddy. It's the saddest thing in the world. It's, it's heartbreaking. And it's its own kind, you see, of, it's its own kind of bondage. It's its own kind of enslavement. Always trying, but never sure you're succeeding. Always hoping, but, but never experiencing. But the greater tragedy is when Christians try to live like foster children. Professing Christians can, can act in the same way, doing, doing our best to be good enough to be loved, good enough to be wanted, good enough to have a heavenly Father who truly cares for us, always trying but never succeeding, always hoping but never experiencing. There are all kinds of people who live like that. They wish it, it could be, uh, they wish they could believe it. They, they wish they could believe that God the Father would love them that way. They wish they could trust that they actually belong and they actually have a home and, and all the promises in Scripture are, are really and truly theirs. They wish they could believe that were true. But they lived then as foster children. But friends, that's exactly the bondage that God has come to break in Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to make you a son, an heir. And He sent the Spirit so that you will experience that reality. So you'll know it to be true. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. So in verse 4, Paul tells us what God did. In verse 5, he tells us why He did it. In verse 6, he'll explain what it feels like. Verse 4, what God did. 
God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time. That's the story of the incarnation. The fullness of time reminds us that this was an ordained time, a predestined time before the foundation of the world. God determined to send His Son into the world to save sinners. And all of human history has been ordained and sovereignly designed to prepare the world for this very occasion, the birth of Jesus Christ. In Luke's Gospel, we read that this time was the time when Caesar Augustus was ruler of Rome and Quirinius was the governor of Syria. It's a time when a young peasant couple from Nazareth made their way to Bethlehem in order to be registered. And there in a stable, Mary the Virgin gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, the very Son of God. God the Father had sent His Son into the world. And there are several things that we learn about Jesus, essential things we learn about Jesus in this one little verse. We we know that Jesus, the baby, was the very Son of God. That's incredible. Jesus, the baby, is fully divine, fully God, one with the Father in power and in glory, From all eternity. God has invaded the world in Jesus Christ. He's invaded our humanity as he joins us. And that's the second thing. Jesus is fully man, born of a woman. God himself taking on human flesh, never to set it aside. Jesus is forever man. And he's born under the law, his law. But, but submits to the law, joining us in our enslavement to the law, in a sense, taking the commands and the curses of the law upon himself. But Jesus turns the bondage of the law into victory by keeping the law. Never once violating a single command, not one. Fulfilling every command, every requirement, in every way, at every moment, even unto his death on the cross. I love what William Still (laughs) says in one of his sermons. He says, the most victorious thing that Christ ever did was to die sinless. Get that deep into your heart and mind. The most victorious thing that Christ ever did was to die sinless. Praise God that he did. God sent forth his son, his own son, born of a woman, born under the law. But why did he do it? We're told in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice then, friends, that the, (coughs) the divine purpose of the incarnation is adoption through redemption. Let me say that again. The divine purpose of the incarnation, the reason Christmas happened, was adoption through redemption. Let me just, uh, very quickly, when we hear the word adoption, uh, we're not quite sure what to do with that. Because adoption sounds to us a little bit like not quite the best. The, 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 The best thing is to have your very own family. This is sort of how we think. And to be an adopted child sort of means to be added on. And adopted children wrestle with this. Am I really, am I really truly a part of the real family? The real kids? Um, And what about my birth family? Adopted children often wonder about their birth mother, their birth father, their, their, the the family that they sort of belong to uh, by nature. 
Well, one of, the, one of the amazing things about the gospel story is that when God adopts you, you, you find your birth family. You find your birth father. We were made sons of God in creation. You, you read it. Adam was, is called the son of God. We are the sons of God, made in the image of God. And we, and we lose our status and our relationship with the Father because of our sin. So when we become adopted, we're, we don't come into a second-class relationship with the Father. We find our true home, our true family, our true, our true Father. That's the beauty of Christian adoption. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, when an an adoption in our day takes place, two things have to happen. First, the legal bond that that the the, um, child has with the state has to be broken, right? The child is maybe a ward of the state or maybe a ward of of, uh, a birth parent. That bond has to be broken, and a new bond has to be created with the adoptive family. That revoking of old bonds and creating of new bonds costs money. The money, in a sense, is the redemption price. It accomplishes the breaking of these bonds and the creating of these bonds. And that's exactly what Paul is describing. Jesus was born precisely to pay the price of our adoption. Notice the critical words, so that... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that the redemption is for, to the end of, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The goal of redemption is adoption. God's purpose in sending His Son is to make you His Son. And that was His purpose all along. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, that Paul says that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It was God's purpose all along. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, God saying, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Redemption is for adoption. Jesus did not come to this earth simply to die for your sin, to pay for your sin. That's a truncated gospel. Uh, that, That talks about the means, the manner. It doesn't speak to the end, the purpose. And it won't transform your life. It's not enough for that, you see. There's little joy in being forgiven if you believe you're still an orphan. Jesus did not die simply to pay for your sin. He died to pay for your adoption. He died to make you a child of God. And that was the joy of Jesus when he rose from the grave. Remember when he meets Mary and and she's clinging to him. He says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. But then he says this. Go to my brother's. And say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Jesus knows why He came. It's to create a family. It's to make sinners into sons. And Jesus delights in His new siblings when He's he's raised from the dead. And He reminds them, He wants them to know that His Father is your Father. 
that adoption had been accomplished. And that was the thing that stunned the apostles. John, 1 John 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. Children of God. Sons and daughters of the Most High. John Newton was a man who cherished this thought. Newton, as you know, maybe know, his mother died when he was very young, seven years old. Um, he, uh, he ran away to be a sailor at 11 years old and lived for years uh, the wicked, vile life of a seaman. He ended up, he sunk so low, he was a, uh, the captain of a slave ship. But one night in the midst of a fierce storm, uh, he was sure he was going to die and be sent to hell for his sin and he cried out to God for mercy, and he received mercy. And he was profoundly converted and transformed and spent the rest of his life as a minister of the gospel. If you walked into John Newton's study and you looked towards the fireplace, you would see over the mantel a large banner. And it was a banner to remind Newton of his sonship. It's taken from Deuteronomy 15 Verse 15, thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. You've been redeemed. No longer a slave, but now a son. Redemption is for adoption. This is why the Father sent the Son. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. Now what does that feel like? Verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In verse 6, we see that adoption feels like an intimate relationship with God as your Heavenly Father. The Spirit teaches us to say Abba. That's the most intimate term a child would use for their father. And God sent the Spirit specifically to give you, to teach you the experience of sonship. John Stott says that God sent His Son to accomplish the status of sonship. God sent the Spirit to give us the experience of sonship. That the Spirit's tasks is to teach us and to lead us into this intimate relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. To teach us the joy of an intimate, personal, prayerful, dependent, confident relationship with the God who made us. The God who sent both His Son and the Spirit in order to make us His family and to give us the joy of that family. I think this text should make it so clear that, that God's desire, the Father's desire, is that we live in the unshakable conviction that we belong to Him. That He is our Abba, our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. The church is our forever family. Heaven is our eternal home. That's what God wants us to experience in the gift of His Son. So the question is, do you? Do you live in that joyful knowledge? You see, there's a, there's a tremendous difference between the lived experience of a foster child and an adopted child. A true child, a child that, that has found his true family in the kingdom of God. But, but let's just think humanly here. 
You see, a foster child is in the home but does not know if that relationship is going to last. The adopted child knows that it can't fail. It's a forever family. The foster child is in the home wishing they could say to the man of the house, Daddy. The adopted child happily, confidently takes that name on their lips, knowing that they're loved. The foster child is afraid to ask for great things, feeling they might be a burden. One of the traits of the true child is they ask for extravagant things, knowing that they are loved. The foster child desperately wishes for someone to love them and care for them and protect them and claim them, and the adopted child knows they have all of that. The foster child wishes they could belong to a family. The adopted child is thankful that they finally do. So what does your Christianity feel like? Does God feel like your foster parent or like your Abba? And I ask you that sincerely and ask you to answer it truly. Does God feel like your foster parent, someone you're in the house but you're just not really sure of your relationship to him. You hope, you hope that he loves you. You wish to believe. You hope to believe. You want to believe that, that he really does care for you and that, he, that he'll protect you, that he won't cast you out, that he actually acknowledges you, knows your name, loves you. Or do you know those things? Do you run to him when you're afraid? Confident that he'll protect you? Do, you? do you trust his provision even when life is hard? Confident that, that he'll only do what is for your good? Confident that he, that he loves you and that he cares for you and you, you're not alone, you're not lost, you're not abandoned, you're not being punished? Do you relish the fact that you belong to his family? That, that you, though you live in a world where there's millions of people without God and without hope, some, for some reason that you cannot fathom, God chose to love you and to call you to be his very own child, his very own son or daughter, and has brought you into the family of God simply by grace. What does your Christianity feel like? You see, friend, your Father in heaven has a gift for you this Christmas, and it has your name on it, and, and the gift is the remembrance of your adoption. Both the objective reality of it and the subjective experience of it. The Father desires that you know Him as Abba. That you know Him as Father. That you have in your heart a deep grasp of that truth. You're not a slave. You're not a stranger. You're not a foster child. You're a son. And all the rights and all the rewards of sonship are yours in Jesus Christ. You see, so, so often we just don't dare believe it's true. Friend, let yourself believe it's true. What the devil promised could never be true has come to pass. What your, what your guilty conscience convinced you could never happen has happened. And God has sent his son and he sent his spirit as the laughter of heaven to assure you that it's all true. You are claimed. You are known. You are loved. You are not alone. The Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? Fear not. Fear not, little flock, the Father is pleased. He's pleased to give you the kingdom, to give you everything. 
You're promised all the privileges of sonship, that you have free access to the throne of God, that, that you can ask anything, anything in Jesus' name, and that God will always, always give you exactly what is for your eternal joy and good. That's the gift of Christmas, that knowledge, that conviction, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth Jesus to make all those who believe in him his children. And that in Jesus you find your forever family. In Jesus you gain an eternal home. That's the gift the Father gives to you and to me by faith this Christmas. But it's by faith. And if you do not belong to Christ by faith, confessing your sin and calling out on Jesus alone for your salvation, then, then you're not a child. But today you can be one by confessing your sin and looking to the Lord Jesus as your righteousness. You today can know can know that you're a child of the Father. I just want to impress on you this morning God's desire for you to know that, for you to experience that. Make that your prayer. But, but above everything, believe the word. This is God speaking to you. You are not a slave. In Jesus, you are a son. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's the gift of Christmas, the gift from your heavenly Father, with your name on it. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, who are we that we should be called the children of God, and yet that is what we are, and all by grace? Father, forgive us for not believing it. Forgive us for being like little foster children who don't dare believe it's true. How could we be so rich? How could we be so blessed when we are so bad, so fickle? And yet, Father, um, this is your message to us. It's what you call us to know and believe. And so, Father, we, we do believe. And we thank you. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand the gospel in a fuller, richer sense, that Jesus didn't die just for our sins. He died for our adoption. He died so that we could find our true family and our forever home in God, in our Father. And Father, I pray that that truth would transform the way that we live so that we move from fear to faith, from bondage to freedom. I pray, Lord, that um, the attributes of the family of God, the attributes of our Father and our, of our elder brother would become more and more our attributes, the attributes of love and kindness and joy and peace and patience the things that mark the children of God. May they mark our lives today. And above all, Lord, give us the joy. Behold, what manner of love should be given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And may that be our experience this Christmas, the wonderful, overwhelming, astonishing experience of being named a child of God forever. Amen.